And I got to be honest with you guys today. Uh, I didn't want to be here today. How, how many of you, how many of you have ever had the day where you're like, I just, I don't, I'm, I'm just not, no, no, I'm not, I don't feel like being there. Uh, you can talk about it at work. How many of you have days at work? Like, I just don't want to go to work. Raise your hand. Cause this is my work. Okay. So I'm here and this is my work. So it's bad when the pastor's like, today, I just don't want to be here. And people are like, why don't you want to be here? Did you have a bad week? I don't know that I had a bad week. It's just one of those weeks. It's kind of like, any of you have that week? Any of you having that week this week? Raise your hand. I'll pray for you guys too. Okay. Some of, some of you guys are just like, I'm just having that week. But you know what? I put on my big boy pants and I came in today. Okay. As a matter of fact, that's what we expect, isn't it? For us as adults is that we, we, you know, despite the fact that we may feel a certain way, we're going to respond as mature believers and say, you know what? I know I don't want to be there today. Whatever my selfish motivations, whether it was a bad week or just I'm not feeling right, whatever that that motivation is, but I'm going to be here today because I'm not here based upon my whims and my feelings. I'm here because the command of God tells me that don't forsake the gathering together of believers. Doesn't matter that I'm the pastor. Don't forsake the gathering together of believers. Rather, encourage one another all the more as you see the day of Christ approaching. Right, So that you and I are, are here together for a reason that we're to glorify God and God wants us to walk in that maturity. Today we're going to be looking at the, the study that we did this past week through Leviticus chapters 21 and tw- through 25. And, and the sermon is titled, Expecting the Best. Expecting the Best. And the reason why it's titled this is because God wants us to give our best. You know, what's so funny is when I first was a Christian and a believer in Christ, I began to feel the burden of God concerning ministry to youth. The church that I was at only had about 40 people, and we had one mid-hire and one high schooler. And I was concerned looking at what the next generation was going to look like at this very small Southern Baptist church in rural Georgia. I was concerned what faith was going to look like for the next generation, knowing that there were only two people there, and the average age of our congregation was upwards of 60 60 years old. Very small handful of people, my wife, a few other small, a few other couples that were there, probably maybe about 10 of us that represented people who were less than 60 years old. And I had a burden because I had come to Christ in 1992, gotten married in 94. That's for my wife's sake, so she knows the year we're married. It's true. She's, she always forgets. It's like either 94 or 95. So she actually is signing me thank you So <laughs> over there. <laughs> thank you for remi- reminding me of when that was. Um, and then... 95, 96 is where I'm, I'm growing and I'm getting this burden from God that I really would like to lead youth doing that. And I remember talking to my wife and asking her, I was like, I really believe God is leading me to want to pastor in the area of youth ministry. And she said a very amazing question that set me on the course of where I am right now. She looked at me and said, what do you know about youth ministry? 
And she seriously like, what do you, I mean, you've never been, you, you haven't been a Christian even five years yet. What do you know about youth ministry? You know nothing about youth ministry, right? And she was not wrong in that sense. I mean, I had a burden for youth. They, they were there in the Sunday school class that I was kind of there and uh, involved in and wanting to see them grow. But at the same time, I, I'm like flying by the seat of my pants the best that I can, right? And it started me on that path of looking for a place where I could become equipped for the ministry that God would call me to. Well, that's kind of what we're looking at here because I I knew that I I needed to be something more than what I was in order to properly lead the ones that God had burdened me for. Right? There was a higher calling from where I was. Well, that's what we're looking at when we're looking at the book of Leviticus. You'll you'll notice up until this point, when we've looked at the book of Leviticus, all of these um, sacrifices that were there at the very beginning of the book are for the people. Whether we're talking about the burnt offering, or we're talking about the grain offering, or we're talking about the fellowship or peace offering that's there, the sin offering, the guilt offering, these were for the people to be involved with. But now we're looking at some standards in Leviticus, and we're going to be looking specifically in Leviticus 21 at the standards for the priests. And in order to be a priest, we see some higher standards that are given that are not given to the normal people, to the lay people who were out there who were bringing their sacrifice. And there was a real reason behind that. So let's take a look at this together in Leviticus chapter 21. And we're going to read the first 15 verses together. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, a priest must not make himself ceremonially unclean for any of his people who die, except for a close relative such as his mother or father, his son or daughter, his brother, or an unmarried sister who is dependent upon him since she has no husband. For her, he has to make, he can make himself unclean. He must not make himself unclean for people related to him by marriage and so defile himself. Priests must not shave their heads or shave off the edges of their beards or cut their bodies. They must be holy to their God and must not profane the name of their, lo- of their God. Because they present the offerings made to the Lord by fire, the food of their God, they are to be holy. They must not marry women defiled by prostitution or divorce from their husbands because priests are holy to their God. Regard them as holy because they offer up the food of your God. Consider them holy because I, the Lord, am holy. I who make you holy. If a priest's daughter defiles herself by becoming a prostitute, she disgraces her father. She must be burned in the fire. The high priest is one among his brothers who has had the anointing oil poured over his head and who has been ordained to wear the priestly garments. Must not let his hair become unkempt or tear his clothes. He must not enter into a place where there's a dead body. He must not make himself unclean even for his father or mother nor leave the sanctuary of his God or desecrate it because he has been dedicated by the anointing oil of his God. I am the Lord. The woman he marries must be a virgin. He must not marry a widow, a divorced woman, or a woman defiled by prostitution, but only a virgin from his own people. So he will not defile his offspring among his people. I am the Lord who makes him holy. So we begin to look 
at these qualifications of the priests and these qualifications in order to be considered a priest for the people of God, they are to be set apart. Now, the priests come from Aaron's line. And so those from Aaron's line are, can be uh, set apart to be priests. And those people have different rules, a higher standard. And that higher standard is because God has set them apart to minister to the needs of the people because they're the ones offering the sacrifices before God that make the people holy. The justification of the people come through the sacrifice. The sacrifices of the blood is what redeems the people and makes them holy. And the priests are the one who offers it. Therefore, they needed to live a little bit different than everybody else. They were told they just couldn't marry anybody, right? You can't marry somebody who's been divorced. Not that other people couldn't marry a divorced person. It's that the priests couldn't marry a divorced person couldn't marry a prostitute or somebody who came from prostitution. Not that other people couldn't marry somebody who had that background, but the priests were not allowed to do that because God wanted the priesthood to be holy. Therefore, they were supposed to be virgins. They were supposed to be people who were going to regard God first and foremost in every area of their life. Because the priests were supposed to do that. Not only that, if they were the priests, they weren't allowed to go to other people's funeral and be partaking of the death of somebody else's family. Now, their own close family, they could. But the rest of Israel, like you have a friend who dies, the priests aren't going to show up. Because they have a ministry before God that has to be kept. If all the priests left because that there was, there was death that was somebody close to them, we would have no priest to offer up sacrifice for everybody else for the atonement of sin. Do you guys begin to see how this affects the community? And this is why the high priest had even more regulations than the regular priests. Whereas the regular priest could go for a close family member, the high priest couldn't even go for a close family member doesn't even matter if your mother or father died. You cannot leave the sanctuary. You are anointed with the holy anointed oil. You are the one who gives the uh, sacrifice on the day of atonement for the entirety of the people of Israel. What if their parents would have died that week? Right? They can't just take that day off because it affects the entirety of the community of the people of Israel. Because by that sacrifice on the Day of Atonement are, are the forgiveness of all the sins of the people, that yearly reminder of the, of the atoning sacrifice that God was going to give them and was going to eventually fulfill through Jesus Christ. This was the yearly reminder. So just because there was a death in the family meant that the high priest still had to do his job. This is what he was set apart to do. And he was set apart in such a way that he was supposed to be holy. Remember, holy just means set apart. You are set apart to continue to do this ministry before me, no matter how you feel, no matter what's going on in your life right now. You know why? Because you are ministering before the people of God to make them holy. Right? As with all things... Over time, these standards become a little bit lax. 
as much as we don't want them to. We, we want to hold all things in regard and revere all things in regard as holy, but that didn't always happen. As a matter of fact, when we look at the history of Israel, we're going to look at a very sordid account among the priests that happened there when the lack of regard concerning God and concerning these commands for the priests and the high priestly position was taking place. And there's some lessons that we can take from it. So it's 1 Samuel chapter 2. If I could have you guys turn to that real quick. I want to set things up by giving you some context. So after the law is given, and Moses is no longer there, and Joshua takes over. You have 400 years worth of judges. So we're talking about 400, 450 years from the time of Leviticus to the time that we're going to be reading about here in 1 Samuel. This is the last of the judges. Now, the time of judges was a terrible time in, uh, in the time of Israel because what you see is this downward spiral among the people of Israel. They get worse and worse and worse as time goes by. The end of Judges ends with this line in the New American Standard Version. In those those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. See, the king was supposed to be God. It wasn't talking about an earthly king there. It was talking about God being their king. And here at that last place, that that last uh, judge, if you will, with Samuel being the last judge before they institute the kingship, within the people of Israel, we get this account to understand how bad things have gotten even among the priesthood, which reflects back to what we look at Leviticus chapter 21, the higher standard that was supposed to be there. And we're confronted with a man whose name is Eli, who's the high priest at the time. And Eli himself loves God, but his sons do not. And his sons are priests who serve the Most High God. And we're going to take a look at what has happened to the priesthood over this time. Starting in verse 12. Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priests with the people that whenever anyone offered a sacrifice and while the meat was being boiled, the servant of the priest would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand and he would plunge it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot and the priest would take for himself whatever the fork brought up. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. Shiloh is where the tabernacle was located. Just so that you know, we're still talking about the tabernacle, all the sacrifices that were there. But even before the fat was burned, the servant of the priest would come and say to the man who is sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the man said to him, let the fat be burned up first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I will take it by force. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's eyes, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. So the first thing, if you'll remember, the fat portions of all the sacrifices were God's. They were not to be eaten by the priest. This was God's portion that he was taking. The fat portion was supposed to be burnt up. 
that was given to God. That's what we've been reading through the book of Leviticus. This was God's portion, God's offering. What was left over was given to the priests as their portion. But now we have these men who are sending out the servants of the priests to plunge in there just to take that meat that has the fat still on it and take it back to them because that's what they want to eat. It doesn't even matter if it's fully cooked. It can be raw. And so they were defiling the sacrifices that they were supposed to be faithfully administering before the Lord. Skip down to verse 22. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all of Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he'd said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, it's not a good report that I hear spreading among the Lord's people. If a man sins against another man, God may mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? His sons, however, did not listen to his father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. So now we see not just are they eating the sacrifices that belong to God. They're even having sex with women who are coming to the tent of meeting. And that goes totally against what we just read, that the priests had this higher standard. They were not even supposed to marry somebody who wasn't a virgin. Here they are sleeping with other people, prostituting other women to themselves. And according to the word of God, the people who are supposed to, who are doing that are worthy of death. Because they're defiling the sanctuary of the Lord. They're defiling the practice of making God's people holy. And they're doing it in front of all of Israel. And it's an interesting response because there's a man of God who comes and confronts Eli concerning this whole matter. Now remember, Eli has regard for the Lord. You can hear him talking to his kids and saying, no, why are you doing this? This is a terrible thing. But as we're going to see that Eli may be not, be not quite as pure of a high priest as we think him to be. Verse 27 Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your father's house when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your father out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense and to wear the ephod in my presence. I also gave your father's house all the offerings made with fire by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your son's more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and your father's house would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your family line and you will see the distress in my dwelling Although good will be done to Israel in your family line, there will never be an old man. Every one of you that I do not cut off from my altar will be spared only to blind your eyes with tears and to grieve your heart. And all your descendants will die in the prime of their life. And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be a sign to you that they will both die on the same day. 
I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his house and he will minister before me and my anointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver or a crust of bread and plead a point from me to some priestly office so I can have food to eat. You kind of get the idea that God's not very happy with how Eli's handled the situation. And you know why? Because Eli is favoring his sons more than he's favoring God. You might say, wait a second, didn't he just get on to his sons? No, he got on to his sons, but he didn't remove them from the priesthood. He got on to his sons, but he let them to continue to minister according to the people of Israel against the word of God. Because the priests were held to a higher standard. And yet, he kept them there. Why? Why? I think we can understand as parents, right? Don't we feel that pressure? To justify for our kids and want to make sure that they're, you know, we want to give them that next chance and that next chance and that next chance and that next chance. And it's not my child who does wrong things. They'll learn. I I learned the hard way. They're going to learn the hard way too. I'm going to have patience with them. But there becomes a line where you and I end up honoring our sons, our wives, our daughters, our parents in a way that dishonors God. When we allow his standards to continually be broken and yet we just say it's okay. Even though we don't agree with it, even though we may not practice it ourselves, we allow it to go on and say, no, no farther. That's it. No more. You're not doing this. Forget about it. You know why? Because I serve God. And because I serve God, he's first. Your mom's second. You're third. If you're in my house, and if you're not in my house, you're further down the list. Not according to me, according to God's word. We'll read about that in just a second. Because that hasn't changed. You cannot show the holiness of God and honor God by putting other people higher than God in your life. You can't do it. And God wants a holy priesthood. You and I are grafted into that priesthood, and more so. Here within the body of Christ, this local congregation of people, God still wants a separateness among those who are leaders. God doesn't want just anybody and everybody being able to do everything. We're part of the body of Christ. We're supposed to be growing in holiness. And we are supposed to be discerning concerning those who would honor God with their lives and those who are not honoring God with their lives. So let's take a look at some New Testament standards that are kind of the same thing that we still look forward to. It's, it's the priesthood of believers, but even within the priesthood of believers, we have leadership. And those leadership roles require a different set of life than everybody else who's still growing in faith. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we're going to read the whole chapter. 
says, here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer or elder, depending on your translation, he desires a noble task. So, so first of all, wanting to be an elder is not a bad thing. Can I just say that? Wanting to be an elder, wanting to be a leader in the church is not a bad thing. He desires a noble task. But then come the qualifications that step into it right afterwards. It says this. Now the overseer must be above reproach. The husband of but one wife. Temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not given to drunkenness. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone doesn't know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate, trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife, and he must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in the body, was vindicated by the spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. And so we see that the leaders within the The church today have that same exacting standard, don't they? They have that standard that's a little bit higher than everybody else. As everybody else is growing to be those types of people, we're looking for these who reach this standard. If you're going to be an elder, you must be able to teach. You cannot be a new convert. I know many people who are new converts, and guess what? They are excited about God. They love Jesus. Man, I want to be just like that's awesome. It's like, I'm ready to jump into ministry tomorrow. And the word of God is like, no. No, there's other things you have to do first. You have to know your faith well enough first. You have to learn to be able to teach. You have to control yourself. And God is very clear in his word. The reason why we don't do that is so that those people don't become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Because in their enthusiasm, they may think that they really are. I just lost, there we go, I'm back again. But that faithfulness only bears itself out in time, doesn't it? I know somebody's faithful if they remain faithful for a long period of time. I can find lots of people who are on fire for Jesus and six months later they're in a worse place than they were before. Can't you? People we've gone to conferences and gone to different places places like up at camp and had these wonderful experiences where it's like I'm so close to God and then six months later they find themselves worse than before why would I ever want to put them in a leadership position in a place of teaching others when they themselves don't have their foundation firm yet I need people who are reliable in that area 
And this is why we have what we have set up here at Heights, believe it or not. Everything that we do here is to bring people into maturity so they can look and understand what it means to be mature. So if you're new here and you wonder what does maturity look like, what do we look for for those people who are wanting to be overseers, to be deacons, to be life group leaders, to be you're like, I want to be able to do that. Here's the first thing you need to do. I'm going to just lay it all out before you. This is what we're looking at. Because if we can't define what maturity looks like, then how do we know what to aim for, right? First thing is this. You need to know the word of God. We don't just tell you that we're going through the Bible in five years because it's a cool thing to say, I've gone through the Bible in five years. No, I go through the Bible in five years because the Bible reveals Jesus Christ and what it means to follow him and understand who he is as Lord and Savior. And if you don't have not gone through the word of God and you don't understand from Genesis to Revelation how the whole thing glorifies Jesus, you're not ready to lead somebody else into that revelation. So you need to know the word of God. If you've never read the word of God, I've just given you a task that you need to do to become mature. The second thing you need to do concerning our congregation is that you need to be involved in all three pillars of our, of our faith statement. To love God, to love God's people, to love serving God. And it comes down like this. Love God. You're here on Sunday mornings. You know why? Because we're in fellowship together as we're commanded in Scripture to do so. So that we can love one another and build one another up till we all reach maturity in the faith. That's what we're called to do. Ephesians chapter 4. Second thing we're supposed to do love God's people. Our life group is the discipleship arm of our church. That is where you're going to dive in deep in the discussions of what the word of God means and how to apply it to your lives and be held accountable by a group of people who are equally concerned for your growth in Jesus Christ. So you need to be in a life group. So if you're not in a life group, I'm just giving you something to do to grow to be mature. Number three, need to love serving God. That means you need to be serving within the capacity of this church because you only learn so much by sitting down and listening to other people pontificate. Even if their pontification is led by the Holy Spirit. God wants you doing stuff for the body of Christ. You are part of the body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Ephesians chapter 4. You are part of the body of Christ. And the body works best when all of its body parts are doing what they're supposed to be doing. you got a job to do within the body. So you need to be exercising that. So if you're not serving within the body, I'm just giving you something to do. You need to be able to demonstrate and practice the six disciplines of faith that we focus on here at Heights. It's Bible reading. Imagine that. To make sure that that's something that you're doing on a daily and weekly basis. That you're in the word of God. That you can share with other people how to walk through the word of God. If they've never done it before themselves. It's prayer. Prayer needs to be an important part of your life. That you're walking with Jesus and praying for others' needs. All the things that Sam mentioned today. The whole Acts thing, which I love. That was awesome, by the way. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, those things. And some of those words, you'll be like, I don't know what some of those words mean. That's why you need to know it. Because if you don't know it, how are you teaching somebody else? 
So we need to not just practice these things. We need to know how to explain it to somebody else. The third thing is fellowship. The fellowship of believers. The idea that we're coming together and this body means something. And being able to explain to somebody else why the fellowship of believers is important. The fourth thing is outreach and service. People are like, why do those two things go together? Here's why those two things go together. Because Jesus said, a new command I give you. This is John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. He's talking to his believers, the disciples up in the upper room. Judas is already gone at this point. And he says some amazing words. Love one another. Love within this congregation will do more of a testimony for Jesus Christ to the outside world than you going out there and helping every old lady. You going out there and helping the poor who may not even care for Jesus Christ. The neglect of the body of Christ for the sake of trying to reach out to somebody else who doesn't know Jesus actually undercuts the ministry. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say don't reach out to those who don't know Jesus outside of this place. But there are people who will reach out first and foremost to single moms who are in their neighborhood but not in their church. There are those who will visit elderly people who are in nursing homes that are out there so that we can have a testimony for Jesus when we have people who are in nursing homes within our congregation that are left unvisited. That does not stand as a testimony for Jesus because Jesus says, all people will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Outreach and service are tied together. The service within the body of Christ is so important to our outreach because it's a training ground for which we learn how to outreach to others outside the body. Number five is discipleship. Discipleship is growing beyond just knowing the word, but understanding how the word affects every single area of our lives, that we grow in our discipleship personally, and that we take others with us in our discipleship. Because every one of us are called to make disciples of others, followers of Jesus Christ, not just converts, not just people who come to know Jesus, but people who need to be walked into maturity in Jesus Christ. That takes some patience and diligence and time. It's an investment of life. You have to take time to be able to do it. It's not going to happen overnight. Those new converts who are not ready to be elders, someday will be, but they're going to take a lot of people coming beside them and raising them up so they can know all of these things. That's where discipleship comes in. And number six is giving. Jesus said, you know, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Us giving to the things of God is important, not in my economy, in his Where we invest our time, where we invest our treasure, that's where our heart really is. And until these things are practiced among his people, these are the traits that we look for in leadership along with one other one. The fourth one is this, desiring to see those other three that I just mentioned built up in others. The knowledge of the word of God. The practicing of the pillars of faith. The being able to discuss those six disciplines I just talked with. That you want to see that in somebody else. This is how we define maturity here within our church. 
And if you're not there, then I've given you a whole list of things to work on. Because God wants you and I set apart to be leaders in different areas. This is who we want teaching our Sunday school classes with all of those precious children who are there. We want to see those kids growing up in Christ, but it only happens when those teachers who are in that classroom know all of those things that I just mentioned to you. That they know the word of God, that they know the disciplines of faith, that they're practicing these pillars that are within our congregation. You know why? Because not to do that is to undercut the leadership and then undercut the other people within the congregation. To end up with leaders like Phineas, who's willing to take shortcuts outside of what God demanded for the leaders and the priests to be able to do. There's supposed to be a high exacting standard for service. So if you're on the praise team, guess what? There's a high exacting standard for service. You know why? Because you're leading everybody else in what it means to praise and worship God. So you have to be the first worshipers in this place before anybody else. And that's whether you feel like it or not, because worship isn't a feeling. It's a command. You can't command a feeling. So you can't command worship, you can't command love if it's only a feeling. But we're commanded by God to worship him. We're commanded by God to love him. We're commanded by God to obey him in all of these things and therefore to set an example for others. And too many times, too many churches, too much time in Israel, We allow to let go lesser standards than these because we just need something filled. But we need this position filled, so we're going to make this announcement so that everybody can run into it, whether they're qualified for it or not, because we just need to fill it with something. That's an irresponsible way of doing things, and it will not lead to the discipleship of people. But people need to know what that standard is. So they can aspire to it. You know why? Because those who desire to be an elder desire a good thing, right? That's a good thing to want to desire. It's a good thing to want to be set apart and want to be built up into maturity. But in order to do that, we have to define what maturity is, and then we have to step up and be that mature person. See, I didn't want to be here today. I mean that sincerely. I, you might say, well, that's part of your sermon. No, that really is, wasn't part of my sermon. I added it today because I didn't want to be here. But I'm called to be separate and holy. That there's a different standard for me as a pastor standing up before you. I don't get just to waylay and say, hey, I'm just going to take this Sunday off. But all of you are called to that holiness. Do you realize that? You are called to that growing holiness, which means that you should aspire to those greater things, that greater responsibility, that greater time, so that you can point others to Jesus Christ, because that's what it means to make disciples. We are called the priesthood of believers. And the priesthood was set apart to be holy. Where are you at in your maturity in Christ? I'm giving you a lot of lists today. List people are going to be happy today. Or sad. Depending upon where they are on that list. But you guys know what that next step is now. 
Where are you at? We should aspire holiness. We should aspire maturity. We should aspire that everything that we do honors and glorifies our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me? I'm going to ask our elders to come forward. I'm going to ask you just a simple question. Where are you at in your place of maturity? What's your next step? Some of you need to really get in the word of God and stop putting it off and stop stop saying that it's somebody else's job or hearing it every single week and not picking up the word. Some of you need to grow in the most basic of areas so that you can truly call yourself a follower of Christ. Some of you need to step up and and do some other things on that list, whether it's serving or get involved in a life group or maybe discipling somebody else into maturity. Whatever it is, all of us are called to be holy and set apart. This place here is a training ground, but every place where you serve in this place is a place of responsibility that you need to make sure that you are right before God because you have the responsibility of taking somebody else with you. Today, we're just going to ask for a time of encouragement. Whatever that thing is that your next step is, maybe you need some prayer to step into that. We encourage you to come forward. We're not any better than you. I need to grow. I need to be more faithful. I need to grow in my discipleship and understand how to do things even better. By the grace of God, I pray that I will. But you come. If God is calling you to that next step of discipleship, you come and you pray with these men. You be held accountable so that you don't stay stagnant in your faith. Because all of us, every single one of us, are called to make disciples. He wants to prepare you for that work. God, thank you so much for our time together. We pray it in Jesus' name, this day, that you will challenge us for that next step, whatever it is, that we may glorify you. Help us to become mature. Help us to be the leaders you've called us to be. Help us to make disciples who make disciples, O oh Lord. Help us not to be content with our knowledge of where we're at right now, but always striving more and more to be more faithful to you, to prove ourselves holy, set apart for your work, that we would be ready for any good deed that you would want us to walk in. And thank you, dear Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus for the awesome opportunities to tell others about your son. Whether in song or in teaching, in word, in our families, whatever it is, oh God, help us to understand that's why it's so important for us to know your word, what it means to follow Jesus with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. And by your grace that you would allow us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.